Continue praying for them in the coming weeks and months. Um, so we're in the middle of Joshua, and today this is part four of Joshua. We'll be in Joshua chapter five in a few minutes. But I want to recap and give you a little bit of review. We had a video last week, a standalone video on the topic of courage. But I want to catch you up to what we've talked about the last few weeks. So we talked about how Israel, Israel was set free from Egypt, and, um, but because of their unbelief and disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so God kept them there for that many years because of their unbelief and disobedience as a people. And God would not allow that generation to enter the promised land. So they, that generation died off before they were allowed to enter into the promised land. And so Moses is dead, and now Joshua is the new leader of Israel. And part of the story we haven't really covered yet, we have not told you that when they were in the wilderness, the generation that had seen God do amazing things and set them free from Egypt, that that generation, um, some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. When things got difficult in the wilderness, some of them were saying, Moses, let's go back to Egypt. That, that was easier back when we were in bondage and slavery. And what's really crazy about that is as bad as slavery was, they preferred slavery to their freedom. And it reminds me of a story um, that happened a few years ago. I had a student at my old church in Arlington where um, this kid's name was Chris Wilkes. And he was, his faith was sort of teetering at the time that I met him. And he was maybe a freshman, a sophomore, I think, around that age. And one night, he and a friend, he started getting into the party scene quite a bit. And one night, he and a friend stole a car at a party and took off. And they're just going really fast down this road. Chris is driving his friends in the passenger seat. Chris runs into something on the side of the road and kills his friend, his best friend. The car is just cut in half. Horrific accident. I get the phone call, that, and this kid had been coming to our church for a while as well. The other kid had, so I knew the other kid. So I go to the, the viewing, the funeral, the whole deal. A really tragic thing for this young man to go through. Well, you would think that would get his attention, but it didn't. For several more years, he began to continue the party lifestyle, got into drugs, alcohol, the whole bit. And it was several years later that Chris ends up in jail. And then I actually run into Chris once he got out of jail. I ran into him in Arlington at this event, and I knew the, the story. And I said, man, and, and at this point in the story, Chris had given his life back to Jesus. He had, um, was now working in a church as an intern. Like He had got a totally changed and shifted his um, pathway of life. And I walk up and I said, Chris, it's like, remember me? And we, we, got, we embraced and everything. And, and, um, and, uh, and I said, man, so you were in prison for how many months? And, and I said, what was it like, like knowing you're getting out of prison? Like, what is that freedom like when you say, I, I'm leaving prison and going into, back into freedom? And he said, actually, it was pretty scary. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, because you, you're in this routine of prison and you just know what to expect every day. And yet, the idea of I've got to go and live in freedom now is a scary idea. And I never thought of, of it like that before, but it does make sense. And this is kind of what the Israelites wanted. They experienced freedom, and yet they wanted to go back into slavery. I don't think you have to work real hard to make a spiritual parallel for us, because there's many of us, we can relate to this. When you first come to know Jesus, there is freedom in Christ, but that freedom can be frightening. 
And when you first become a Christian, there can be a wilderness experience that you have. The Israelites dealt with this. They're in the wilderness now. They are free, but they're also in this place of wilderness. And this does not seem as appealing as what slavery seemed to them. And the same struggle can be true for us, I think, in our own walks with Christ. So this is why we're talking a lot about fear and courage in this series. You're going to hear that theme a lot as we talk about the the book of Joshua. Now, two weeks ago, we discussed uh, them crossing the Jordan and into the promised land. We talked about, um, Raymond Jimenez talked about that a couple weeks ago. And next week, there is this big elephant in the room when it comes to the book of Joshua, and we're going to discuss it next week, and it's the topic of conquest. How do we make sense of God being a God of love and all that we say that he is, and yet he's telling the Israelites to go in and invade this area and take out people groups? How do we make sense of that? So we're going to dive into some of that next week, but just hold off on that for now. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But for now, uh, today's passage is a strange but interesting passage. And we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Today's, I'm just going to let you know up front, today's, part of today's message is going to be a little bit awkward. And here's why. Because this passage talks a lot about circumcision. In fact, I almost skipped over. I was like, I'm just going to skip that part of the, the book. And, uh, but then I started reading the text, and I was like, no, there's actually some, we need to like really dive into this text. There's some good stuff here, and I don't want to make um, the awkwardness of it keep us from seeing what God wants us to see. But how do you start off a talk on circumcision? I mean, if you're, if you're a visitor, welcome <laughs> to the Outback. Um, we don't skip over to tough topics down here, but how do, you, how do you start off a talk on this topic? I try to think of some, you know, jokes to, like, cut the tension, but I had a hard time thinking of some, because no matter how you slice it, circumcision is just awkward. I mean, it's just an awkward topic. Hey, I can keep going if you want. You guys need to pray for me as I flesh out this passage, okay? All right, we're done. We're done. All right, cut it out. Cut it out. Stop it. You said it, not me. All right, so we got the tension out of the room at least, right? Um, So earlier in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Abraham. So what is the deal with circumcision in the Bible? It's one of those things where if if you're not a believer or you're a new believer, it's one of those things where when you're opening up the Bible and you start actually reading it. Like right now, I'm in the book of Exodus at the moment, about to get into Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all those fun books. But if you're a new Christian or not even a Christian yet, and you start reading some of those parts of the Bible, it's the part where you're like, God told them to do what? Why? What, what is this? And you just sort of shut the Bible and say, that's why I'm not a Christian. That's why those people are weird. This book is written for weirdos. But I want you to see the significance of what, why God called the Israelites to do these ritualistic type things. So earlier in the Old Testament, 
God makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a relationship based on a promise. And God told Abraham, I'll make you the father of many nations. And the sign, God said the sign of this covenant was going to be circumcision. The reason for that was because it was a generational blessing that he was giving to Abraham. So it meant, I want the generations uh, after you to be spiritually pure in the way that I'm asking you to be pure. And so this symbolized purity with the people that were to follow after Abraham in the generations that would follow. So the sign was circumcision. That was the sign. Now what is a sign? A sign is an outward symbol of an inward reality. This would be like I'm wearing this wedding ring right now. This is an outward symbol of an inward reality. This circumcision sign was meant to symbolize purity. Israel was to be pure and holy before God. So in the Bible, you're going to see words like circumcised or uncircumcised applied not just to, um, but also to ears, eyes, lips, heart. You'll see Jesus say things like, you Pharisees have uncircumcised hearts. What he meant by that was your hearts are not pure. So this word comes to take on much more than just the physical meaning, but a spiritual meaning of spiritual purity. So the act of circumcision did not make someone pure in the same way that this ring right here does not make me married. This is a symbol of marriage. But if I were to bring up two of you guys up here, like a guy and a girl, and I borrowed a a nice diamond ring and I just slapped the ring on your finger, does that make you married? No, it's a symbol of the inward reality of marriage. I am married, but this ring doesn't make me married. I'm married. This symbol is a, is a, this ring is a symbol of our marriage, a symbol of the inward reality that is marriage. This is what circumcision was supposed to be. In fact, a modern-day parallel to this would be baptism. So we encourage all believers to become uh, to get baptized. And we do that because um, it's also an outward symbol of an inward reality and as a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being applied to you. So look with me in Joshua chapter 5, verses, verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So the Israelites are across the Jordan now, and the kings of Canaan are now frightened and terrified because Israel has entered into their land. So word travels around to all these kings of Canaan. It says their hearts melted. Remember where else we saw that phrase? We saw that phrase in the story of Rahab, where she said, the people of Jericho and all the surrounding areas Their hearts have melted because the Israelites, they've heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. Now they've heard about the crossing of the Jordan. And their hearts have melted again. They are intimidated by the Israelites. When they heard the Israelites were coming, there was no spirit left in them. You ever have a situation where you just feel like you're just defeated, like you just have nothing left? You realize you're just, um, your defeat is imminent and you have nothing left 
in you. This would be like finding out you're playing the Patriots in the Super Bowl. By the way, so who you have? Who's got the Eagles today? Raise your hands. Who's got the Patriots? Raise your hands. They're eh, kind of even. But listen, what makes the Patriots scary? It's two things. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, right? What makes the Israelites scary? Nothing. Nothing in their own right makes them scary. They're a bunch of shepherds. They're a country of shepherds. They couldn't even set themselves free from Egypt. God had to do all of it. So there's nothing inherently scary about the Israelites except for one thing, and you see it in the passage, where these kings know that God was the one who dried up the waters of the Red Sea and the Jordan, and the fact that God did that, this is why they're terrified of the Israelites. There's nothing inherently powerful about the Israelites. Just a bunch of shepherds. What are they going to do? Like hit you with a stick? They, they have no power in themselves. And so the presence of God is what makes the Israelites um, scary to these people in Canaan. And this is so important, I think, for us to understand because you have to get that as a Christian, your power is not in yourself. Your power is not you. It's the power of God working through you and in you. And you have to understand this. Otherwise, you're going to get so caught up in in just trying to... um, manufacture life change and manufacture these things that that only God can do in your heart and your soul. So the Israelites have crossed the Jordan. They've entered the land, and so now they are going to start sharpening their knives and get ready for battle, right? That's what they're going to do. But no, God has a different plan. And so look what God, this is now the awkward part of the passage. So verse 2, it says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. So God wants them to sharpen their knives, not for battle, but for something else. You know, because that's what you do when you go into battle, right? I mean, you circumcise everyone, right? That's the plan. So, so God says, make flint knives. Here's a picture of what that might look like, the flint knife. Next slide. There we go. So this is a crude instrument, right? They, like, take a rock and make the rock sharp. And so this is Joshua doing this ceremony for all of the men of Israel, okay? Now, this is really strange. If you notice in the passage, it says, circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Which raises the question, a second time? Like, how does anyone do that a second time, right? I mean, circumcision is like listening to Justin Bieber. Once is enough, right? That's how I see it anyway. But so if you read on the passage, listen. Whenever you read the Bible and you have a question, the really cool part is, There's usually an answer that follows. So look at verse 4. We're beginning to get an answer now on what he's talking about. 
It says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So what he's saying is that the earlier generation that left Egypt had all been circumcised, the later generation had not. And so when it says a second time, it's referring to this later generation. So for 40 years, listen, God's command was to do this ritual as a sign of the covenant. And for 40 years, they disobeyed. They never carried it out. So this would be like if this ring is an outward symbol of an immorality, would it mean something to my wife if I walked in the house one day and just threw the ring at her? Would that mean something to her? Would that be symbolic of something happening inside my heart? Yeah. She'd wonder what was up. And that's essentially what the Israelites were doing. They were just flinging this ring at God saying, we're done, you know, like we're, we're not going to carry out this sign of the covenant. We don't even, are you even there? All this doubt and all of this unbelief came to fruition and they just cast off the sign of the covenant and discontinued the practice because of the state of their hearts. This is why they did this. The older generation had lost their fervor for God. This is a generation that saw some amazing things. They saw the ten plagues. They saw freedom from Egypt. But in the wilderness, they grow disoriented and confused. I can't help but think this might be some of you or even some of your parents. Your parents have lived a longer life than what you have lived. And maybe in their earlier years, they can look back and say, I was so passionate for God at this stage of my life, but now they've just, they're just going through the motions right now. And some of you are seeing that. Maybe they're still attending church, they're still doing the things, but some of you are seeing them in that later state, and it's causing you to question and wonder, is this even legit? I don't see much life here in the stories that are being lived out in front of me. And this is what the younger generation of Israel would have, would have seen. They would have seen parents, the parent generation, just sort of lose their faith and lose their fervor for God, and this is the kind of environment that they grew up in. Seeing a generation of parents just totally turn their back on God. And this is now the faith that's been handed down, the lack of faith that's been handed down to them. This is why the act of remembering, I'm a huge proponent of the act of remembering. So you not just spending time in the Bible and prayer, which is hugely important, but you remembering the works of God in the past. Not just in history, but in your own life. I went to the men's conference last week, and um, I rode down there with three other guys. And on the way there, we said, I I want you guys to share your stories of how you came to faith in Christ. 
And it took us all the way, a two-hour drive for three guys to share. And then one got to share on the way home. But you know what? Those conversations, they fueled the entire weekend for us because it was so cool to hear this person's story and this person's story and hear how God's work because whenever you hear someone else's story, it gives you this freshness and new appreciation for who God is. You start to see God through someone else's eyes. And if you're starting to grow cold and stale in your walk with God, and you hear someone else's story, and it's now, more, it's now fresh to you again, where you're, you see God through someone else's vision. And it's renewing, and it revives you. This is something that the older generation had not done. They had forgotten. They no longer remembered what God had done for them in the past. When you remember in this way, it changes you in the here and now. It does something in your heart. It, it awakens your heart and brings you alive. And when you forget this past, it leads to confusion and, and apathy. And you see that in the life of this generation of people in Israel. You might say it like this. How we respond in the wilderness reveals our true faith. So why did God allow this generation to suffer so much in the wilderness when they had suffered immensely in Egypt? What was God up to? Well, he's trying to reveal their true faith or their lack of faith. This is the same function that God does in our hearts when you and I are in the wilderness. Is Our faith is tested in the wilderness. And it reveals our true faith or our lack of faith. The people of true faith are the ones who obey even when they're in the wilderness. And this was not the Israelites. This older generation, they had the outward markings of faith, but they lacked this inward reality. And I've got to be careful here. I'm not trying to bring up, you know, many of you have wonderful parents that are, have a vital, life-giving faith. But I do want to point out that there's probably some people in this room, and you're just here because your parents bring you here. That's just what you do as a family, and I get it. I was the same way at your stage of life. My, they just brought me to church, and I just went through the motions. But you're seeing something. You're seeing a certain kind of faith. I've got to talk about this. I'm going to be honest with you. You're seeing a certain kind of faith lived out in your family context that has all the outward markings of religion but lacks the inward reality and the vitality of faith. And you see it. And you can't quite put your finger on why you don't like it. Why you don't respect it. And yet, Satan's now using that your flesh is using that to say, you know what, I'm done with the whole thing because this isn't real, and this is your reaction. But this is the same thing that was happening in the nation of Israel with this older generation. You know, my wife and I had this conversation, and we'll, we'll talk about things that my parents will say even today, and things that maybe her parents will say even today, and we look at ourselves, we just go, how are we even Christians now? <laughs> And it's, it's not this self-righteous thing. It's, it's only by God's grace 
I, I, we're gonna, our kids will be doing the same thing. My dad's a pastor. He wants to be a pastor's kid. And yet, we look at ourselves and go, the kind of church, the kind of faith I was taught, at least the way it was, you know, the tone that was used towards unbelievers, the tone that was used towards people that struggle with certain kinds of sin, the tone that was used towards other political parties in my home, I wonder sometimes, how am I even a Christian today? Why didn't I just throw it all out? And here's why, because it's the grace of God and that's it. It's the grace of God and that's it. This is why it's so important for you to keep your eyes fixed on God and his word and his promises, not on the lives of everybody else. And let that distract you from what Jesus wants you to know about him and his character. Let's look at verse 6. It says, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who had come out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were all healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. This act that Joshua carries out with the people is a huge act of faith. And here's why. Because he's made it to where all of the military-ready men can't fight or defend themselves. They have to trust God to protect them. You might say it like this, faith always leaves us vulnerable. And I think the same thing happens, you see it play out in our own lives. Faith always puts us in this place of vulnerability. Whether it is you stepping out in faith, and saying, I want to follow Jesus, you're vulnerable now. Your friendships are going to be a little bit different. Your friends that you had are going to see you differently. They might reject you. If you're in a relationship with someone, and it's not a God-centered dating relationship, and God is calling you to end that relationship because of the nature of it, Faith is going to leave you vulnerable. And you and I want to be in these self-protective mode and, and, and protect ourselves and, and prevent those kinds of feelings and emotions. But faith always is going to leave us in a place of vulnerability. There's no way around that. It's going to leave you in a place of vulnerability. Look at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. 
And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Remember Passover, what that celebrated? Gary discussed it in the main service this morning. Passover was a celebration that helped them remember the last plague in Egypt and being set free from Egypt. They'd had this feast to celebrate this event. And remember that if, if the doorposts of their homes in Egypt was covered with lamb's blood, then the Spirit of God passed over that house and would not take the firstborn of that family in the way that he did with the Egyptians. So they celebrated this with Passover, this event. It's an annual feast celebrating God delivering them out of Egypt. They had not celebrated Passover in 40 years. Can you imagine no Christmas for 40 years? Just the, the ache that would create in your soul? I mean, every year we're on this rhythm and pattern of every Christmas. We know when it's coming. There's anticipation. There's a calendar. This is how Israel was with Passover. And yet for 40 years, there was no Passover. And so now they enter the promised land, and now there's the first Passover. And the celebration ensues. Look at verse 13. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is a powerful scene. Just let the scene just soak in for a bit. They've celebrated Passover for the first time in 40 years, and then Joshua sees this amazing vision this appearance of someone. And some think this is not an angel, but a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Joshua sees this person and thinks he's a warrior for the other side, then realizes who he is, and he worships him. Remember earlier, when Joshua was told by God to be strong and courageous, what did God tell him? God said, I will be with you. And now here God is showing up in a physical way and showing him, I meant it when I said it. I'll be with you. What an act of grace by God to show up in this way and give him this confidence that as you enter the promised land, I am with you as you do what I've called you to do. So what is this passage all about? When I look at this whole, this whole text, as crazy and awkward as part of it is, I see a couple of themes. They are spiritual renewal and revival of the people of God. This older generation had the outward markings of faith, but they lacked real faith. They didn't have the inward reality. 
And right now, I, I'm afraid this might be some of us. And there's something I've been praying for, and I'll continue to pray for, and it's in my own heart as well. And it's a spiritual revival and a spiritual renewal to take place in us as a people. There's three different kinds of things that happen when this kind of renewal takes place. And here they are. The first thing is when revival happens, sleepy Christians wake up. When Christians are lulled to sleep in their sin, there's no real repentance. There's no real conviction about sin. We explain things away. We have justification for things. We have reasons. And yet when revival happens, it's when the sleepy Christians wake up and there's true repentance and true conviction about sin. When I was in, this happened for me two major times in my junior high and high school. It was 8th grade, 10th grade. Became the markers for me when I feel like I woke up. I was a Christian, but I was asleep. And I was being lulled to sleep by my own sin. I was in some very unhealthy dating relationships, sinful relationships. And God convicted me. And there was brokenness and repentance. And when there's revival, sleepy Christians wake up. They wake up when the gospel becomes real and powerful to them again. And I know there's a, there's a room full in here of people that you're, many of you have been in the church for a long time and you're just used to hearing the same things over and over and over. And I mean, the gospel, you know the gospel, you know the story, you know the message. The people of Israel, they knew the story, they knew the message. They saw some amazing events, but their hearts had grown cold towards God. And our hearts grow cold towards God in spite of the knowledge that we have. But if the gospel itself ever becomes boring to us, then something's wrong in here. If you want to know the state of your heart, it's when the gospel itself becomes just a thing or just a, you already know it. When, it, when, when you have that attitude toward the gospel, you know something is wrong in here. And it hopefully leads to conviction and, and repentance. And I'm not talking about some emotional binge, but real repentance. Heartfelt repentance. So sleepy Christians get awakened. And then secondly, nominal Christians get converted. By nominal, I mean people that aren't truly Christians, but they think they are. When revival happens... Nominal Christians get converted. People that think they're believers, but then realize, I'm not sure I've ever really surrendered to Jesus. They become true Christians, and they have this fresh understanding of what it's all about, and they say, I want that for my life. There are people that bear the mark 
of Christianity, but they are not true believers in the church. I want to point you to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I want you to focus in on that phrase, believe in your heart. Being a Christian is about a belief in the heart, but also this confession with the mouth. We have so relegated Christianity to just being this intellectual understanding or this, I confess it with my mouth, that means I'm a Christian. Well, the Israelites said, I had this ritual done on me, so that makes me part of the people of God. But they lacked the inward reality. Belief in the heart leads to life change. Real, vital, life-giving faith. So when sleepy Christians wake up and nominal Christians get converted, this becomes a powerful narrative in the church. Then what starts to happen is the third thing, which is skeptics become believers. When revival happens in a place, you will see people that were hardcore skeptics against Christ and his church suddenly have their eyes open and become hardcore followers of Jesus. And it's powerful. And these are the things I'm praying for, for myself and for us. And I hope that you continue to pray for these things as well. So I want to just invite you for a few minutes to respond. We're going to have some discussion in a minute. But if you're someone, I want to always invite you after we have these discussions If you sense the Spirit of God moving in your heart and your soul, you would consider yourself not yet a believer, follower of Christ. And you want to talk to a leader about what that looks like, what that means. Come find one of us, and let's have that conversation of what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. If you're someone who is a nominal Christian, and God's convicting you, let's have those conversations. We've all, all of us leaders have been there. We've all experienced the same journey that you're on. We're not that far ahead of you. So let's have those conversations together. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for what it teaches us. As as, as ancient as it is, we thank you for how much it relates to us in the here and now. We praise you for it. We pray it it would stir in us something that you wanted to stir in the people of God so many years ago. We pray that for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go into your discussion at your tables.